you guys can grab a seat. Thanks, bro. It's the perfect word of God. It's amazing. Thanks for reading. Oh, good evening, church. Uh, picture this with me. Over 2,000 years ago, a Roman centurion stood at the foot of a cross. And as he looked up, he saw this Jewish man who was mocked to be king of the Jews. This criminal's ribs were showing. He had nails driven into his wrists and into his ankles. Blood was dripping. His face was defamed. And he had a crown made of thorns stabbed into his forehead. This Roman centurion was in charge of a hundred soldiers and they saw crucifixions day after day. He was an eyewitness to arrest and he would even administer punishment by death. He was in charge of making sure that criminals did indeed die on the cross. This crucifixion should have been just like any other crucifixion that this Roman centurion had seen before. It was his normal nine to five routine work. And to the Roman centurion, this person's death on a cross simply signified their status as a slave. And so it should have just been another piece of property that was hanging on a cross, paying for a penalty that they did. There was nothing in them that said king and nothing in them that said divine. This slave was merely a slave. However, this particular Roman centurion just witnessed the greatest death of all time. He just witnessed the greatest sacrifice of all time, the greatest act of love of all time. He witnessed the crucifixion of a savior. He witnessed a death that potentially changed his life. This Roman centurion was looking at Jesus Christ, a man who lived a perfect life, yet died a criminal's death. And after seeing Jesus breathe his last, the Roman centurion stood there and he had a moment where the death of Jesus was unlike any other death that he had seen before. And he responds with this shock, and he declares in Mark 15, verse 39, truly, this man was the son of God. And you can hear the pain in his voice. You can hear the disbelief in his voice that they just killed an innocent man who loved sinful people. Now, as we have the picture painted for us, with Jesus' death convincing the Roman soldier, this Roman centurion, that he is the son of God. I want to ask us a question today. Is this a death that changes my life? If this is your first time at City Light, uh, welcome. If you are part of our church day in and day out, welcome. Uh, my name is Justin, and I work here at the church in our college ministry. Um, my mom said that my shirt is wrinkled. I'm sorry about that. I threw it in a dryer. I try to keep going, but is what it is. Sometimes you just got to let certain things go. But my name is Justin Holman. It's, it's great to meet you guys. I'm excited to be here. Um, this is our church's Good Friday gathering uh, where we talk about Christ being crucified on our behalf so that we can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, that Friday's death had to precede Sunday's victory. That in order for us to go from dead in sin 
to life in Christ, he had to be crucified. And so my hope is that after we leave today, and we have this in-between Saturday, that we would take time, much like the Roman centurion did, and we would marvel at the crucified Savior, and we would ask ourselves, does Jesus' death change my life? So we'll be looking at the story of Christ's death from Mark 15, verses 33 through 41. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up, or your Bible app, uh, that's totally fine, or if you got to hop on Safari right now. Mark 15, verses 33 through 41. Um, I'm excited to see how God will move in our minds and our hearts, both for the person in the room who hasn't been to church maybe in a year, um, or maybe six months since Christmas, or however long it's been since Christmas, and also for the Christian veteran. You've been to Good Friday services for 20 years. I'm excited to see how the Lord um, will shepherd us through the word. So I have three parts in our text that will hopefully help us understand it a little more, break it down, have it make sense. Part one is a real darkness. Part two is a real prophecy. And part three is a real death. So let me pray for us and then we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering us here today, um, that we can open your word and have your word alive and active, showing us um, the death of our Savior. I pray that it would convict even me. Uh, Spirit, would you lead uh, tonight in our minds and our hearts, uh, pointing us to you and our need for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I find stories to be incredibly helpful for me to understand what God is doing. Um, And so to be captivated by our passage tonight, I just kind of want to walk through this story of Jesus's final days here on earth. It is this real story. So if you would, just put your finger on Mark 15, 33, and then flip to your Bibles to the left to Mark 14, verse 36. So just one page. I love that sound. That is the best sound ever. Flip of a Bible page. That's great. So just flip over. This is one of the most intriguing moments of the entire Bible. What's so funny? (laughs) It's not funny. We're talking about Jesus' death, Naomi, so we will talk after the gathering. All right. That's great. Um, Wow. Okay. (laughs) This is one of the most intriguing moments in the Bible. Uh, Taking place in a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus is surrounded by these sleepy disciples. And all knowing of what is to come, Jesus sees the death that's before him, and he actually becomes greatly distressed. And in this heavy emotion, he cries out to God. And I'm going to read it, and I just want you guys to see it. Mark 14, verse 36. Jesus cries out in agony. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So in verse 36, the word cup, just highlight, underline, circle that, the word cup. Here Jesus is talking about the cup of wrath. And I know that the cup of wrath is out of our daily language. It sounds bizarre. It's confusing. We don't really know what that means, but it's incredibly significant. The cup of wrath symbolizes God's judgment towards mankind's sin against him. 
It's God's judgment towards mankind's sin against him. God's justice being served on the guilty sinners like you and me. Onto my pride, Justin Holman's pride that goes before his love. Onto me performing for people to get praise instead of just seeking to glorify God's name. Onto Justin Holman's lying about a situation because I'm afraid that people will look at me differently. Onto my 15-year-old self where I was rocking this really nice cross necklace in public for everybody to see. But then in private, I was completely denying God. God's justice being served onto the horrific punishments, the horrific, um, the horrific unpunished crimes that we see on the news day after day after day. Onto the sex trafficking, kidnapping, and home breaking. Onto dad cheating on mom. Onto gossiping about someone else's life. Onto small little lies and even dishonoring thoughts. These are namely called sins. Punished by God's completely justified wrath. Things that we think are too little and things that we think are way too big. Because of our sin against a holy God. Eternal separation from him is the only thing that we deserve. My fiance is incredible at reminding me that the only thing we deserve is death. I'd be like, no, I deserve to have fun. No, you don't. You deserve death. Thanks. (laughs) Appreciate it, Kels. But this is the cup of wrath that Jesus will take on the cross so that we could take a different cup. The cup of fellowship with God. He takes the cup of wrath so that we can take the cup of communion. And not just little sips of joy that leave us begging for more. No, it comes in abundance. The cup of fellowship is full, going over the brim for all of us to enjoy. Jesus takes on the full wrath of God so that we can have all of God. And it's in this garden, this moment where death is on the horizon, a few days out from his last breath, Jesus sees the cup of wrath and he says to the Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. And after this moment of obedience between a son and a father, we progress through the story of Christ's final days. Jesus leaves the garden having obeyed his dad And he gets arrested. And he gets sentenced to death. And in Mark 15, you can now turn the page right. Or drop your eyes or flip your phone screen. Mark 15, 16 through 20. Jesus is led by Roman soldiers to his crucifixion. Now is the time where he is beginning the walk. Along the way, this Jesus who traded the riches of heaven... For the scums of earth has a crown of thorns slammed onto his head. He's mocked, he's punched, and he's spit on. And during this, Mark 15, 22 says that these soldiers brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. So pause, let's paint the picture again. I think often when we see Jesus on a cross, we picture him distant on an untraveled mountain, this distant death that had an insignificant location. But verse 22 says that they took him to Golgotha. Now get this, 
This is incredible. Golgotha is a little hill that's located right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And it's near a gate where many people would come in and out of Jerusalem. So why is that significant? Well, verse 29 and 30, drop your eyes down there. It says this, and those who passed by, underline, highlight, circle, passed by. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the text says, those who passed by. These were Jewish people coming in and out of the city of Jerusalem, passing by the long-awaited Messiah, that for centuries they would have been preparing to meet, to see, to be saved. Christ's death was not taking place on a distant hill, but was taking place right outside the city for all to see and all to hear. Here on Good Friday, in this sanctuary, in the seats that you are in right now, with the word of God in front of you, the spirit moving, we are witnessing Good Friday for all to see and all to hear. It's not a distant reality that we shy away from, but it's right in front of us asking us, is this a death that changes my life? Do I see Christ's death as my ultimate lifeline, the necessary means between a sinful person like me and a holy God? My life destined for hell, completely flipped upside down, longing for heaven. My life of sinful rebellion flipped upside down into complete surrender to God. Or do I just go on about my days existing without God at ends with him? And maybe Jesus' death brings me to church or has me open my Bible once or twice a year. Or maybe, yeah, I'm a Christian because I do good things for God. But I don't really let Jesus touch my dreams, my desires, or my dimes. I think we can all relate with both sides of this at some point in our life. Maybe we were a rebellious person against the Lord, completely denying the gospel, or there was a point where we accepted the gospel and became numb to it. But being showered with Jesus' grace, we can take a step back and we can fall on our knees instead of passing by in ignorance and ask the question, does this death change my life? And have it sit there. Which brings us to the short but powerful Mark 15, 25. And it says that it was the third hour when they crucified him. And I want us to see the word third hour. In Jewish culture, the day began when the sun rose, which happened at 6 a.m. And so the third hour of the day is 6 a.m. plus three hours, which is nine in the morning. That's easy math. I'm bad at math. That's why I'm in ministry. But that's easy for me. Uh, so nine in the morning, the day is underway, and there Christ is, and he's hanging from a cross. He's not enjoying a warm cup of coffee as he enjoyed sweet fellowship with the Lord in the morning, but rather he was expecting to take on a cup of wrath so that we can enjoy that fellowship with the Father. As we look to eternity, the Christian re rejoices in heaven because of Jesus taking the cup of wrath. 
Anytime we get to sit down, Christians, and have our Bible open, and we get to listen and talk with God, that is a pure grace that came from a death on a bloody cross. Christians, may you marvel at the cross in your alone times with God. This ongoing fellowship is a pure grace, and that changes your life. Your life as a 27-year-old single woman looks a lot different as a believer than someone who's not a believer. Your life as a 35-year-old dad as a believer looks a lot different than a 35-year-old who is not a believer. There is a grace to enjoy the fellowship. And to the non-Christian, do you see that Jesus endured so much just so that you can know God? That you don't have to muster up anything. You don't have to come to church or be in your family or treat people nicely. You don't have to be a good, round-edged person. All you need to do is see Jesus' stretched out arms on a cross and believe that his, with his death, he took your punishment for you to know a perfect God. And friends, if we decide to still pass by the cross going in and out of Jerusalem, going in and out of our daily lives, passing by what Jesus has done, there is a great darkness to alert us. So the first verse in our selected passage, we're finally in our key passage tonight. Mark 15, verse 33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 9 a.m., the sixth hour, until noon, or from 9 a.m., see, I told you I can't do math. 9 a.m., um, the third hour until noon, the sixth hour. For three long, excruciating hours, a perfect man is hanging on a criminal's cross. People passing by, chief priests and scribes all mocking him. And then at noon, darkness. The lights go off and hell comes to Golgotha. From noon until 3 p.m., utter darkness. And three hours is no coincidence. Maybe you guys remember uh, three to four years ago um, how everyone stopped what they were doing because a solar eclipse came through Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, It's this moment where I think the moon covers the sun, right? And it creates this darkness. I don't know. But it was great because it was like recess for adults. Everybody just stopped what they were doing. On the college campus, all these college students and professors were out on the green space, and we had these, like, IMAX sunglasses on, and we're looking at the sun, and they're like, but don't take the glasses on. We're like, okay, I'll just look at the sun with his glasses, and we're, like, marveling at the darkness at noon, as if we don't see darkness at night, but it was incredible. We're like, whoa, it's nighttime. Like, the birds stopped. It was a moment of just pure wonder, and how long did that last? Maybe two minutes. Maybe two minutes. God used three hours in the middle of the day of complete darkness to catch people's attention. And Jewish people who were living in this time knew that God's presence when talking of salvation meant light that's Psalm 27.1. And they knew that his presence talking about judgment came in darkness. That's Exodus 20.18-21 20, through 21, and tons of other passages. So they knew when the darkness came in, judgment was upon them. A real 
darkness from noon to 3 p.m. God's pain over mankind's sin, he gave the cross a dark backdrop. And it wasn't pretty, it wasn't glamorous, but it was necessary. From noon to 3 p.m., Jesus is taking every last proverbial ounce of the cup of wrath on our behalf. Instead of us taking the punishment of our scandalous adultery against God, we are substituted out by a perfect man on a dark afternoon in Jerusalem. Friends, before we think to pass by the cross and come back to church for a Sunday that talks about a message of victory, which amen and hallelujah, Before we do that, do we notice the darkness and ask ourselves, is this a death that changes my life? That's part one, real darkness. Verse 34, it takes us into part two, real prophecy. Um, The darkness has now lifted and Jesus is now in his sixth hour on the cross. Let that sink in. Six hours of being on the cross. For those of you that detasseled, six hours was a long time. This was an even worse six hours. Six hours of hanging, full body weight, wounds open, people mocking and passing by. Six hours. Verse 34, it tells us that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So ninth hour, 3 p.m. Frail, yet strong enough to yell out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yelling that. Just keep your finger on verse 34 and then flip to the left now, quite a ways in your Bible, to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. I'll let you guys flip there. Go to it on your phones. I want us to see it with our own eyes. Psalm 22.1 says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we see it in Psalm 22, and we ask ourselves in this moment, why does Jesus cry out these words from Psalm 22? He has all the words in the vocabulary of the world, but he chooses these words from Scripture. Why? Why does he do it? I think there's two reasons why he does it. The first one, why I think he does, and this is amazing to me, is that Jesus knew that those around him, the Jewish people, would have known about Psalm 22. They would have known about this prophecy. And so here Jesus is, and he's proclaiming that Psalm 22 is about him. As he uses it as his last words, he's proclaiming, this is about me. I'm the prophesied Messiah that you're walking by. I am your Savior that hangs here on the cross. All these passing by Jews would continue to miss it. All the passing by people in Lincoln, Nebraska would continue to miss it. If you look at Psalm 22, 7 through 8, it says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And what did Mark 15, 29 through 30 say? We bounce our eyes up in our passage. It said that those who passed by him, 
What did they do? They wagged their heads and they said, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Psalm 22, both being said on the cross by Jesus and also happening as he was dying. Could you imagine after three long hours of non-coincidental darkness and this king of the Jews is quoting Psalm 22 as you pass by, you couldn't help but wonder if this man was truly the son of God and that you were the one at fault with the sovereign God. Friends, as you hear about Jesus' death that was prophesied about long before it happened, does it change your life? That when you hear about Jesus fulfilling this prophecy that you cannot help but declare him as Lord, that you would no longer be like the mocking passerbys, but that you would become a faith-filled child of God. The first reason I believe that Jesus quoted Psalm 22 is because I believe that he knew that the people around him knew that prophecy. And so the second reason I think Jesus cried out these words is that Being fully man, Jesus fully felt the emotion of being forsaken by the Father. Why? Because he was forsaken by the Father. And this is a hard thing for us to grasp. But Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake, God made his son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of of God. A few months ago, Austin preached on this one singular verse. I encourage you to listen to the sermon. It paints a great picture of why Jesus is on the cross. A taking the cup of wrath, Jesus is forsaken by God for us. And if you're anything like me, you wrestle with hard questions. You are analytical. You might doubt, and it's okay. I, I've had these questions. This is a question that came to mind as I was reading this passage again the last few weeks. Is Is God just some kind of divine abuser? Did he just not care about his son? Is he this mean-spirited, irrational, higher being? Can I actually trust him if he treats his son this way? And after a long time of doubting and questioning and praying and asking uh, people way wiser than me, came to see that Jesus isn't the victim of an unloving dad. The passage that a lot of us has heard because Tim Tebow puts it on his eye paint, but carries so much weight that God in his, what? His love for the world gave his only son. Love for the world gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. God gave up his son and it broke his heart. And not only did he give up his perfect son, but he had him sacrificed by mean, broken, sinful, nasty people so that they themselves could be saved by faith in his son. And if you're anything like me, you also ask the question, Jesus, how did you do it? How did you stay on the cross? How did you follow through with your father's plan to take on the cup of wrath? Jesus, how? So that question, Charles Spurgeon Uh, beautifully says that as Jesus Christ was up on the cross, nailed, bleeding, dying, looking down on the people, betraying him, forsaking him, and denying him, in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, he stayed. 
Jesus was forsaken physically on the cross, but he stayed because spiritually him and the Father were one. And he knew that he was forsaken physically so that we could be brought into fellowship with God spiritually. And so he stayed. And in doing so, he fulfilled the prophecy of his death from Psalm 22 and hundreds of other prophecies from the Old Testament. And this would have rocked the Jewish people witnessing the cross. And it's also meant to rock us today in Lincoln, Nebraska, in the sanctuary of City Light Lincoln Church. Real prophecy about a real death that is to change our lives. That's part two, real prophecy. The last third and final part is a real death. A real death. So verse 37 says this, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It is finished. While we were his enemies, while we were the passerbys, the mockers, the bystanders, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Friends, this final breath, this death, is one that changes our life. If you call upon Christ as your Lord and your Savior, this death positions you before God, the Father, not as a sinner deserving wrath, but rather as a child receiving grace. The final breath made it possible for you and me to have life instead of death. Your life is changed because your death is changed. And to see this unearned position with God in amazing imagery, verse 38 paints this wild picture. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So picture with me now another imagery in your mind. Uh, less than a mile away from the cross, there is this temple, this holy temple in Jerusalem. And I, I know that's also out of our vocabulary, out of our imagery, but just try to picture a really nice temple with me. And in this temple, there is this thick curtain um, that's high and thick, um, impossible for man to tear. And this curtain actually separated the rest of the temple, the holy of holies, between the holy temple. There was this place where the high priest would go into once a year. And he would go and make atonement so that the rest of the nation could be forgiven. And then he would quickly leave the Holy of Holies. And the curtain would block everything else from that one room. And this was symbolic of God's holiness and sinful people. And the curtain divided them. And the second that Jesus died, less than a mile away, at this really fancy, incredible, holy temple... This thick curtain is torn. God rips the curtain, tears the curtain in half, saying that this division between me and my people is no more. The temple is nullified. All of the animal sacrifices are meaningless. Separation between people and me, the gap is closed because of Jesus. Christ had become the final sacrifice. A real death causing a real change. Which brings us to close with verse 39. Remember the Roman centurion. The one who saw the arrest of Jesus 
yet never saw that man resist arrest. The one who witnessed this man be beaten, spat on, and mocked, and yet never retaliated. The one who heard the cries of a son as he was being forsaken by his father as darkness filled the land. This Roman centurion who stood at the foot of a cross and realized that he was looking up as a, at a crucified savior. And after 15 chapters and 39 verses in the gospel of Mark, this is incredible. We see for the first time a human being confess that Christ is the son of God. And it's this very Roman centurion. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Truly, this man was the son of God. Jesus' real death causes even the worst of torturers to consider how this death changes their life. People like you and me, unlikely characters, being shown a real death of Jesus and causing us to give an answer for who this Jesus is. And so I ask, who do you say this Jesus is? Was he just a Jewish man who was nice to a lot of people? Or was he just a good person that taught lessons on morality and performed miracles? Is he just a figure that gets us into church maybe once or twice a year? Or would you say that he is the son of God, the one who took the cup of wrath so that you could have the cup of fellowship with God forever? The savior who hung bloody from a cross, taking on the darkness, fulfilling the prophecy, and was forsaken by the father on your behalf. Friends, does this death change your life?